This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So this is a poem called Bear in Mind, B-E-A-R, in Mind, by John Martin. A bear is chasing me through a meadow. And I'm running as fast as I can. But he's gaining on me. It seems he's always gaining on me. I'm running and running, but also thinking I should just turn around and say, stop it. Stop chasing me. We both know you aren't going to catch me. All you ever do is chase me. So think about it. Why bother? The bear does stop. And he sits down on his haunches and he thinks. Or seems to think. And then the bear says to me, I have to chase you, you know. Well, you should know. And sure, we both know I'll never catch you. So why not give us both a break and just stop thinking about me? But with that said, he gets back on his four feet. He sticks his long pink tongue out, looks down both sides of his snout. Then he sighs, looks behind him, then at me, and says, okay, ready when you are. So a bear is chasing me through a meadow, and I'm running as fast as I can. But he's gaining on me. It seems he's always gaining on me. Our mind. What a wonderful, crazy thing it is. It never stops chasing us. In fact, it seems to be us, and yet it seems to be constantly spinning. It's capable of remarkable, remarkably inventive, creative, insightful, tender, loving, all of the spectrum of our humanness. And in the chasing is many other things. And this is where the Buddha started. When he saw some of those many other things that come out of each of our minds. He didn't really understand exactly what he was seeing or the implications of it within him. But as the story goes, living a life of uh, some luxury and some uh, comfort, protected from suffering, he saw a sick person, an old person, a dead person, and then a monastic, someone living a life of questioning, someone investigating these conditions inevitable conditions of our life. 
And so we're here, analogous to where Siddhartha was when he realized the baseline truth of his being. Sickness, old age, and death is inevitable. And more than that, uh, suffering pervades wherever we look, if you have the eyes to see. This distance, this separation, this pain, this deep suffering. There's... And it's all relatable or not relatable. I mean, each of us navigates how we do this, right? Uh, because the suffering means the fundamental teaching of Buddhism. Life is that. Life contains that. Life shows us to it to us. And so... You know, we have a choice of looking, not looking. Uh, It's overwhelming. I can't take it. I won't take it in this circumstance. I want to stare into it. I'm fast, you know, and on and on. And we all have our ways of, of looking or, or our relationship with suffering. And our relationship with suffering is complicated, isn't it? I mean, there's sometimes we relate deeply and profoundly. And, you know, that often happens through our Zen practice. Um, so what is our Zen practice? First of all, it's acknowledging that the bear's chasing us, which is, you know, a fundamental basis of our, ex- our experience of ourself, that the bear is chasing us, that our thoughts are never-ending and keep coming. And, yeah, we may have a few moments where the bear does stop, and he sits down on his haunches and thinks, or seems to think. But then he says, I have to chase you. It's the way it is. And he, she does have to chase us. Because we have this wonderful mind. So, if we can acknowledge that, and that's a big acknowledgement, to just acknowledge you know, this mind that never seems to stop. It just keeps producing. And it's not just it just produces random noise, although it does plenty of that. You know, it produces an explanation. It produces a reference system that we feel safe in and that we understand or hope to understand or will shortly understand. And it produces a context for a life that needs to make sense. You know, we are desperate for, you know, consider, for this moment, consider if the context of your life, whatever you rest your sense of identity and being on, which could be anything, um, it could be work, it could be gender, it could be sexuality, it could be geography, it could be racial, it could be anything, or combinations of anything, more likely. And how that fits together the way my grandchildren fit together a jigsaw puzzle. And now let's dump the jigsaw puzzle on the floor. And how do you think we would feel? You know how you would feel. Without these points of contact, without these support, having everything taken away from you. You would be in utter despair, I would predict. That's our mind. And so we are going, you know, it's like the abused person is going to connect 
is going to look for love wherever they can, even in the abuser. They're going to do that. I, I thought, I've thought a lot about that, because although I was never physically abused as a child, I was abused in other ways. And that, that tension between wanting to love that person and hating that person, and wanting to kill, literally, kill that person, and in some way, we all have that in some ways relationally about others and relationally about ourselves. You know, how self-destructive we can be, particularly when our ground is being threatened. So we have our story, you know, and our story is that bear chasing us. And it's comforting, you know. Still there? Yep. Okay, let's keep going. You know, it's, it's safe. We know the story. And we can even, you know, have a conversation with our self, our bare self, and figure that's analytical and helpful and build that into the structure. But when all is said and done, okay, ready when you are? And off we go. And there will be times, there have been times, when we wish we could change this story of our never-ending thoughts, of our ne- which includes, of course, all of the judgments and um, stuff that we hang on others. You know, the, the, the basic, a basic rule of happiness is that when you judge by others, it's poison. It's a basic rule of happiness. That people who judging you and you feeling that and taking that in is poisonous to you. But we do that. We, we do it all the time. And in the midst of this, we may wish we could change that. But uh, that doesn't seem to be an easy way to do that. So what is this bear? Our ever-present subliminal anxiety? Our dissatisfaction? Our desires? Our demands for something else? Something else that's not this. That's not now. So here we are at this moment in our life And has the bear ever been different than this moment of our life? No matter what the circumstances are, and they change, obviously, but in each set of circumstances, there is this moment of our life. And within this moment of our life, we want or we don't want something else. Or we don't even think in those terms. We're just... not 
aware of this moment of the life, so that thought may not even come up. We're just asleep. We're not even thinking about the bear who's silently following behind us. So, you know, who is this bear? Is it inside us? Is it outside us? Is it me? Am I chasing the bear? Is the bear chasing me? You know, our mind's capable of thinking anything and playing with any creative set of thoughts. And is there any possibility of asking of this bear, what is your teaching? What are you actually teaching? Can you help me? Because I need it. So one way to understand the bear, I've always identified, there's this side panel, I've always identified with bears. Um, when I was a child, my, somebody gave me this atlas of almost all the critters in North America and trees and plants. And each one had a painted, real-life painted um, picture. And I remember I'd look at the wolverine and it would scare the shit out of me. You know, and if you know wolverines, they're worth being scared of. And then there was the grizzly bear. And it had a description, uh, an in-depth description of the grizzly bear. It was 10 feet tall. And the, the picture was standing on high, hind legs with these massive paws. And um, it made a deep impression on me. You know, a couple of years ago, you may know I live with my grandkids, I investigated that book, which had long been gone, of course. And I found it, and I ordered a copy, and I gave it to my seven-year-old grandson. He looked at it, and (laughs) things have changed. People have changed. Buddhist psychology looks at our bear that's chasing us from the perspective of six unenlightened ways of looking at it. And I remember clearly the first time I heard this, and I heard a teacher talk about this, and I said, this is superficial, this is stupid, this doesn't get Western psychology and the depth of it. And then, and I put it aside, and then I kept practicing, and then I kept coming back, and um, here I am (laughs) in these six unenlightened realms. Here's my mind. Here's my bear. And so I want to take a couple of minutes and and look at our bear from this perspective. The first is the hungry ghosts. The pretas, they're called. And they're spirits of suffering. Uh, Hungry ghosts are afflicted beings. The beings with endless desires, tormenting desires, insatiable hunger and thirst. And they're always on the lookout for food and drink. And the illustration for that shows a being with a 
enormous belly that you can never fill and this tiny, tiny neck that you can't get anything past. And it's insatiable. It doesn't matter how much you try and put in. And we're not just talking about food here. So the torments are psychological. Um, They're in our mind. Um, And praetas remain mentally where they live. And there comes with it a feelings of frustration and isolation and desperation. So Buddhism looks at this various ways as, as an actuality of a being, but also as mind states. Your mind states, my mind states. A second is asuras, or titans. And this realm is dominated by, the, by power and the desire for power, for control, by ambition, by competitiveness. And... Um, the Davis fight, and they compete. That's all they know. That's it. And I can identify with this because as a child and into my teens, well into my teens, this is what I did. I competed. Didn't matter the field. I'm just talking about athletics. And my existence seemed to hinge on that. That's, what, that's the reality I knew. They're powerful but immoral. And since they're driven by envy, by greed. And, of course, inherently they cause conflict. It's just the way it is. It's the nature of living in that realm. There's the Deva realm, the God realm. And our beings, our mind resides in heaven. How are you? Great! Everything's fine! Couldn't be better. Six months pass. How are you? Great. Everything's fine. Couldn't be better. And so on. And there's enjoyment of long life, maybe material goods, happiness, power, beauty. I was just reading about a celebrity couple. The, you know, you would know the names and how they're getting divorced. And I stopped reading it at that point. But they're beautiful people. I mean, and they are beautiful people, at least from the Western white man standard. And um, they're in hell. Um, But they've been in the, the heaven realm. They've had everything that you could possibly want. And so the heaven realm, the God, the Deva realm is impermanent. All these realms are impermanent. And when it passes away, um, it, it changes. Because heaven is not the ultimate goal for those who want to awaken. I was thinking, and I, I think I mentioned this a couple of months ago, of, and, and someone mentioned it at breakfast this morning, of the Sackler family, S-A-C-K-L-E-R, and uh, they've endowed many museums and art galleries and uh, Smithsonian, Boston. I think there's something in New York. 
Um, so they've been very generous with their money. And um, they are the beneficiaries of uh, Purdue Fredericks, which maybe not single-handedly, but in large extent is responsible for the um, abuse of oxycodone and oxycontin. And knowing this, and as someone trained in this area, I knew this. These drugs are incredibly addicting. So at one point, the oxycontin, the long-acting oxycodone, which is, you know, an artificial heroin, uh, was marketed as essentially not a... This is the, the pill to give to people who are in pain. You don't want to be addicted. And then they paid physicians to put that out there, and they paid for research to show that, even though the research doesn't show that, and on and on and on. And the point of it, at one point, somebody who knew one of the Sacklers who have kind of distanced themselves from this, but still the beneficiary of all this money, billions of dollars, as it turns out, uh, went to one of the people and, and said, look, you've got all this money and this is what's happening. And the person said, it's fine. Nobody can touch me. I've got so much money, nothing can happen. See ya. And that made a big impression on me, you know, in a way, that's the Deva realm. In a way, that's a big part of our culture, right? I've got so much, you can't touch me. F you. Then there's the human realm. And the human realm is, in a sense, the most fortunate one because it's the realm in which you can awaken. It's the realm in which you can practice. And there's plenty of suffering, but it's not unrelenting. There's also joy. There's also every variation of emotional experience, which is part of being a human being. There's leisure. There's ease and comfort. But it's not so intensively pleasurable that we forget about our humanness. And the lifespan is not so long that every one of us knows what's coming, inevitably. And that invites us to see the truth of impermanence, of change. There's the animal realm, which I also identify with. I live with animals, and I mean that in a positive sense. (laughs) I've spoken about that many times, but when I'm not here, I'm mainly in Pennsylvania living on a small farm. And there's cows, there's a pig, and the pig is magnificent. She's uh, incredibly intelligent and incredibly capable of getting what she wants. But that's all she knows. That's it. And she's in the same field as the, 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 the cattle. There's about, I don't know, 10 cows, one bull. And they're big creatures. She's a big creature, but they're big creatures. And who's in charge? <laughs> she is. Nobody messes with her. And these cows have horns and plenty of size, but nobody messes with her. Penny. Um, and... You know, the animals know when I come down to feed them, 
But Penny particularly knows. The animals make a lot, of, the cows make a lot of noise. She doesn't make any noise. She just sits where she knows I'm going to put her food. And she's there. She even knows what time of the day it is to expect me. I mean, she knows. So there's a cleverness to the animal realm. And I can relate to this. It, it kind of, there's a clever intelligence, but it's still the animal realm. And the, there's immense suffering in it. It's such a limited realm. You know, and she's, I don't, I don't want to describe graphically her environment, but, you know, pigs and cows produce. And there it is. And she's in it. And she likes it. <laughs> and a funny thing about pigs is we've got a 50-gallon water drum there, which she can draw from. But she's not interested in that. She's only interested in dirty water. And I, I don't know what that is. Maybe a, a vet or scientist can say that is. But it's, that's, it's known. So it's a very limited realm. And the dominant characteristic of this realm is dullness. Dullness of mind and brutal desire. And then there's beings in hell. And we've all met people. You know, the the person in Florida, I think, who just got arrested for killing a man uh, where... uh, his wife parked in the no parking zone, and I don't know anything of the rightness or wrongness of her parking there, but he aggressively yelled and um, uh, emotionally went after the woman, and the large black man came out of the store and went over and pushed him as this man was abusing his wife, and the man on the ground, white man, took out his gun and shot and killed him. You probably know that story. And the police declined to press charges because they have, in essence, a make-my-day who's defending himself, and you can claim anything was defending himself. And then they found out this guy has a history of doing this, not actually killing people, but actually drawing the gun in rage about people. Um, I don't know how much the racial element matters. Uh, Always matters some, but who knows? I don't know the details. And so the prosecutor has uh, filed manslaughter, I assume, charges. So this man has set up his life to look for places to be enraged, which justifies me killing somebody. That's hell. I'm running and running, but also thinking I should just turn around and say, stop it. Stop chasing me. We both know you aren't going to catch me. All you could ever do is chase me. So think about it. Why bother? So why bother? Our thoughts are ceaseless. They'll never stop. Is that true? It is true from the ordinary perspective, right? It's interesting that so many of the scientists, and I follow the study of mind and consciousness in the science journals, and um, the given that they have is that mind thought never stops. 
you know, and we're going to figure this out. What is mind? What is thought? What is consciousness? What is identity? From the perspective of mind, thought, and identity. Good luck with that. So it's easy to conclude in your life that your endless thoughts will never cease. How would you know? The six realms that I just talked about are a baseline of anger and jealousy and insecurity and rage and fears, boredoms, desires, greediness, self, me. That seems to continue endlessly. The image that when I was writing this, that came up for me, and it's not an exact image, but, you know, have you ever experienced um, entering maybe on a road or in a city that you didn't quite know the landscape, but there's an, there's an intense fog, and that's what you see. And it has a beauty of its own and an interest of its own, but you can't see anything through the fog. And then at some point, the fog lifts, and it's wholly mackerel. I've spent a lot of my life in the mountains, and it's like that. Um, It's, wow, what's underneath the fog? Well, the six realms of the fog. That's our mind. That's who we think we are. That's our, you know, our, our working hypothesis. This is me, and that's all I can see, and that's all I experience, so that's it. And so these are obvious emotions and thoughts, and they're unending. And when we sit Sazen, we get a chance to see how pervasive our thoughts are. So there's some people here who perhaps sat sat Sazen for a bit for the first time. And I'm sure what you encountered are unending thoughts. And, you know, you're given a recipe to how to work with that, but nothing changes. You know, you have a million thoughts, and you're counting your breath, and maybe you get to two, probably not, you know, before getting lost in more thoughts. So like anything else, you do something once, not much is going to happen. Although something has happened, because you came here today, and you're experiencing something here. And beneath the fog is a universe. That universe has no boundary. And it is you. Beneath the fog is you. And there's no bear chasing you beneath that fog. It's all you. Which does not exclude anybody else in this room, or in this city, or in this world. Well, that's nice, but what about my suffering? What about my endless thoughts? It's necessary to start where you are. It's necessary to start with the fog and to really look into that. It's necessary, what I wrote, to see and to smell the ordure. You know the word ordure? It's a polite word for shit. Maybe it's not so polite, I don't know. To, to smell who we are. You know, it's like body odor. The person who's got endless body odor doesn't know they have body odor, right? 
because that's their world. But everyone around them knows it. Well, that's our thoughts. Everybody around you knows your thoughts because you're interacting with everybody around you. And your actions come out of those thoughts. It's not necessarily linear, but it comes out of it in some way. And, th- and I'm not saying thoughts are bad, no more than fog is bad or confusion is bad. In fact, it's an invitation that in our confusion, there's a big flashing arrow that says, enter here. Well, what does that mean, enter here? It means that's what you study. Well, you can't study it from the same platform that it is. You can't study thought from thought. People have tried, and there are actually schools of Buddhism which do that as, as a way of entering practice by intellectually studying it. But that's not Zen. Zen asks you to sit down and smell the odor. Actually smell it. And that is not fun. Shit stinks. Particularly human shit. And so look at your mind. It's not a matter of that you're staring directly into the bear's eyes. You're staring directly into your own mind. And that quality of Zazen has no bottom and is not graspable. And there's something wonderful about the fact that it's not graspable because by definition, that is your awakening and that is ungraspable. But there's something challenging because you can't grasp it and use it as a satisfaction of desire. You can try. So what do you get from sitting? Nothing. You don't get fulfillment of a desire unless you've kind of taken spiritual practice and nailed that to the wall in some way that that gives you satisfaction, self-satisfaction. But that aside, Zazen doesn't give you anything. It can't. It won't. But you start with our... With our craziness, with our endless thoughts. And we have these thoughts, even when we know they're wrong or harmful to us and others, we have them and we still, it's not that we believe them, we half believe them, we half don't, we act out of them, we don't act out of them, we're, we're confused. It's chaos, it's crazy. And so we try and take the cards and assemble them, and as I used to when I was locked in my room as a child, take a deck of cards and build a house out of it. And I could get to three, and once or twice, four stories. And then you know what happened, right? You put one more card on. And that is life of suffering, he said. So you can't get there from the same plane of existence. You know, we switch back and forth from these six planes of existence moment to moment. You don't believe that, just sit sashid. And in the course of an hour, you'll see all six flashing brightly, maybe less than an hour, maybe five minutes. So you start there. You start there because it's gone on so long that we finally have to say, stop, stop chasing me. You're talking to yourself. There is no bear, you know that. Stop it. We both know it's not going to stop if I just say stop it. So something else is required. And it's not the form of something else. It's not, okay, it's enough to sit down and do Zazen. It's the actuality of it.
It's the actuality of actually doing it while you're doing it. Well, sometimes, you know, appreciate that we're not going to be doing it while we're doing it. That's called doing it. And sometimes we are going to be doing it while we're doing it. And we know that, and that's called not doing it. And it doesn't matter what you call it, because that's the bear chasing you. Just do it. Whole body and mind to the best of your ability at that time, at that moment. But it's, it's no good. Okay, that's a nice thought. Stop growling, I got it. You know, just do it. Do it with the whole body and mind. So why not give us both a break? And just stop our fixation on ourselves. I'm not saying exclude ourselves. I'm talking about a fixation. I'm talking about an obsession. And we have to be willing to get this in our bones. We have to be willing to trust something that we can't deeply grasp and manipulate and fit into the fog of the picture of the fog. Because it's not like that. The trust that you're being invited to, to trust is not graspable because it's, it's, it's your true mind, your Buddha mind, your fullness, your humanness, your manhood, your womanhood in the biggest sense of the word, in the largest sense of being to a human being. And you get that it's not that our thoughts aren't worthwhile or, or don't convey information or... Um, aren't useful. But so much of it is fake news. It just is. It's stupid. It's fake. They're not facts. Not even close, he said. Life gets a lot easier for yourself when you don't have to believe all you think. It really does. And to, to do that, you have to have a degree of awareness of what you think. <clears throat> and to do that, again, you can't, get, you can't solve trans, what you might call trans-platform problems, trans-system problems from the same system you're working in. You can't. You can't do it from the mind. It's not going to work. You, can, you can't address the issues of quantum physics from Newtonian physics. And now that they're getting further and quantum physics and coming up to unsolvable problems, they're beginning to realize you can't solve the next problem. It's called consciousness. From that level of quantum physics, even though a lot of quantum physics seems to apply to to consciousness. So the bear does get back on his foot, four feet, stick out his long pink tongue, licks down both sides of his snout. I love this. (laughs) <laughs> these images of our mind. <sighs> okay, ready when you are, right? And that's a mind. It's always going to be ready when you are to resume the chase. I mean, that's wonderful because we need our mind and we need to be able to spin and have the freedom to spin and laugh and cry and, you know, make fools of ourselves, um, and, you know, not be either such a stick in the mud 
or so untethered that we're a fool. Because we're centered in what our business is. What's your business of living? What is your business of living? The way I understand it, and the way I do my best to apply it, however clumsily, is my business of living is to wake up and help you wake up. That's, that's all I got. What do you got? What do you want? And, as you might point out to all these seemingly insolvable problems of race and gender and economic inequality and the suffering that all of this stuff manifests, what are you going to do about it? What are you actually going to do about it that isn't also so self-referential? And the, and the answer is, I, I don't know, but I'm doing. And the answer is, it's not nice. It's not doesn't fit into a nice linear landscape that I can make pretty, but I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. I will do it. I'm doing it. So we have a practice. And we start with the craziness. That's where you enter. Your craziness, my craziness. No one's exempt from this. No matter how long they've practiced, no one's exempt from the next moment of craziness. You know, it's interesting, uh, contemplative practices, Zazen, you know, they originated many, many thousands of years ago. And nothing's changed. They don't need to change. Our mind is the same. The context may be different, but just in the technical details of that, the suffering's the same. We're the same. Sickness, old age, and death are the same. The sense that time passes so swiftly and is limited is the same. And although in our life, our life can be so vivid and specific to this moment of our life, every human being has felt that way. And all of them in the past have died. And all of them to be born will feel the same way. You know, just walk through a graveyard. You'll see yourself. And the recognition, along with all this, that you're not in control. You have influence. You have a great deal of influence about your own mind. And you're not in control. Both those things are true. And so in this very, very fast-moving world, on every level, you can choose to be thrown about, tossed, taken up by external events, which after all are fascinating. I wonder how many people in this room, when they first get up, go to the their computer and see what's the latest interesting, I'm using that word in quotes, things that our president has said. So we have a choice to fixate on that 
want to fixate on our present moment of awareness and cultivate that. So how do you do that? I already said, enter it. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. We're resistant to what we don't like and what hurts. Stop resisting. We need to see reality as it is to the best of our ability, to the best of our psychic health to hold and to study in the moment. There is a limit to what we can work with. We need to stop buying into what we're told about ourselves and who we are. We need to understand our own tendency to criticize endlessly ourselves and to take that as a reality of failure. And that has many subtle disguises, including success. Not enough, there's more. Just look at those six realms. And if you're interested in those six realms, I, I started to say I disregarded them. Um, but later, when I went read Trump Rinpoche's in-depth analysis of it, I had no trouble placing myself in each of them, and particularly in a couple of them as kind of my fundamental realms of being, and could see the wisdom that they work. So we need to stop fighting. Don't fight. And and this is going to challenge us, I suspect. We need to exhaust our craziness. We need to exhaust ourselves. That's part of stop fighting. We need to stop struggling against anything we might feel. We need to acknowledge how tired we are of being chased by the bear. We need to acknowledge how tender we can be, how loving we can be, how open-hearted we can be, and seek those moments out and cultivate them, not as something that's pasted over ourselves, but as an investigation of who we are, of allowing the possibility, which comes with a humility and a humbleness, which is not easily available to us. so that we can stop struggling and genuinely love. And all of this is based on being still, on the possibility of cultivating stillness in Zazen. So we can see our mind, we can see the bear behind us, in front of us, around us. And we can see what that bear actually is and who we actually are. And it's not something to be accomplished. It's a practice, it's a moment by moment. 
it's like the best pianist in the world practicing scales, that's Zazen. And somehow those scales turn into a masterpiece of a life from practicing scales over and over. We're, we're looking at our own mind, but there's no such thing as mind. Mind is just awake. That's all mind is, awake. There's no thing there. And so that's ours. It is your birthright. It is yours to have, to claim, to awaken to, and to offer. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us on Saturday, September. NYC.